podcast. I am your host, Khadija Adams. I am the founder of Girl Get That Money, a business empowerment coaching um, firm, as well as the Green Street Academy, where we teach you the basics of investing in cannabis stocks. The Cannabis Minority Report is powered by the National Cannabis Industry Association, also known as the NCIA, one of the largest trade show uh, trade associations in the industry. So the goal of our show, you guys, is to highlight minority entrepreneurs in the space and really share weekly updates, news updates about what they're doing in the space and in the industry to not only improve their businesses, but also bring value um, to the industry. So we interview minority entrepreneurs and minority-owned companies, companies that support social equity and social equity applicants themselves, as well as a host of other cannabis industry leaders and pioneers. Joining me today is my special guest, Dr. Ayako Nurse, and she's going to be sharing her cannabis story, what she does in the industry, and how she got involved when we return after our commercial break. Until then, you guys, if you're watching us on Facebook, click the link and press share, okay? And share with your friends so they can actually jump on as well. Mention us in your timeline so you guys can actually watch together. If you have any questions, you can actually submit those questions um, in those comments. We'll be back right after these messages. Good evening from West Orange, New Jersey. My name is Corey Dishman. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Library of New Jersey. My name is Charles Penn. I'm the president and co-founder of the Library of New Jersey. Library of New Jersey is a diversely owned company seeking entry into New Jersey's cannabis market. Our four pillars are community, education, equality, and equity. We're also social equity advocates. Hey guys, we are back. And guess what? We have some news in the cannabis industry. San Francisco ends the cannabis tax so that dispensaries can now compete with drug dealers. Drug dealers? What are you talking about? You're talking about legacy members? I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Anyways, the city of San Francisco has suspended implementation of a cannabis tax on dispensaries so legal marijuana retailers can compete with the black market. Okay? So according to Supervisor Raphael Mandelman, he said cannabis businesses create good jobs in San Francisco and they also provide safe, regulated products to their customers. And sadly, the illegal market is flourishing by undercutting the prices of legal businesses, which is bad for our economy, as illegal businesses pay no taxes while subjecting workers to dangerous conditions and consumers to dangerous products. So now is really not the time, according to him, to impose a new tax on small businesses that are just getting established and trying to compete with illicit operators. Well, guess what? We totally agree with you. I totally agree with you, okay? So th this is my opinion, not that of the NCIA, but my opinion that I agree with you because at the end of the day, why are you charging so much in taxes anyhow? You see, the government already knows how much cannabis um, stands to bring in, and so they want their piece. So to really get rid of those taxes, I'm, I'm grateful, and I think, San Francisco, you are on the right track, but guess what? I believe that this should be done and should have been done um, a long time ago or should never have been done. How about that? Um, and then next up, Portland cannabis businesses um, will have access to $1.3 million relief fund, you guys. Check this out. You know that mom and pops and cannabis shops <laughs> cannot participate in the SBA um, small business loans, right, for the COVID relief, okay? And so, therefore, the city aims to bolster cannabis retailers who were impacted by the pandemic but are ineligible for federal relief funding. So, the Portland City Council adopted a plan on Wednesday, last Wednesday, you guys, to distribute $1.33 million in relief funding to local cannabis businesses impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, um, increased um, uh, property crime and wildfire damage in the past two years, okay? Those, that relief 
is actually for those dispensaries that fall under that category. Now it says the funding comes from a 3% local tax on retail cannabis that Portland voters approved via a ballot measured in 2016. Well, guess what? Hats off to you, to the city of Portland. 1.33 um, uh, million may not be a lot to somebody, but it, this is a really good start, you guys, because cannabis shops cannot participate in federal relief funding. You see, everybody thinks that all cannabis dispensaries did well during the pandemic, and that is not true. You have to remember that in California, there were a lot of riots still going on. There was a lot of things still going on, right, where cannabis businesses were really badly affected. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, because cannabis is still federally illegal, okay, the cannabis companies do not qualify for federal relief funding. So my hat's off to Portland City, um, the Portland City Council for um, putting this into place because guess what? Something is absolutely um, better than nothing. So take advantage of that. If you are a, um, a cannabis owner in the city of, uh, a cannabis dispensary owner in the city of Portland, Okay, I think you should really check into what type of relief you actually qualify for. 1.33 is not very much, but you want to get your little piece of that pie um, while it is available to you. Now, up next, I want to announce um, the, the minority companies um, that are raising capital right now in this space. You know, last week we named like five of them. To, this week we're going to name four. Okay, so the Library of New Jersey. Um, the founders are Corey Dishman and Charles Penn, and they are social equity applicants in New Jersey. And as you know, um, come March 2022, um, um, they will um, New Jersey will then be taking in those applications for the micro licenses. And so the, the Library of New Jersey, um, they are raising capital at this time. So you guys get at them, look for them as well. And their website is actually coming very soon. We're gonna make that announcement when it happens. And then the Turk Courier, um, also a social equity applicant, Mr. Lance Nixon out of Denver, Colorado. He's also raising capital um, as well. He has a website coming soon. But if you look up Lance Nixon and Google his name and cannabis, um, his story is actually gonna come up. He was actually featured in the Emerald Magazine here recently. And then also we have Dryas with Christopher um, um, Favory. If I'm pronouncing your name wrong, call me, hit me up on my email or something and let me know. But it's F-E-V as in Victor R-Y. So I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But his website is yourgreenpackage.com and they are currently raising capital. They are already operational. They are a cannabis dis, um, delivery um, service. They're already um, operational. They already have revenues generating. So if you are an investor out here, look for a company called D-R-I-S, Dryas, okay? Um, Christopher is who you need to speak to. And then we have Dr. Um, Donise Floyd of Legacy Greens, who is also raising capital as well. Um, please reach out to her at LegacyGreensLLC.com. And that's Legacy and then Greens, G-R-E-E-N-S, LLC.com. And then now for my favorite, I like to go over favorite products or favorite services. And so the company that um, I want to send my hats off to is RMCC. Um, Debbie Speranza, that's my girl out there. You know, she's one of the, um, the partners in that company. Um, she is actually the chief learning officer, I believe, and it's RMCC. They have a brand new website that's going to be launching soon. So join us next Monday. We're going to release um, that website, that new website address um, so that you guys can participate. They have an awesome program for social equity applicants. And I know this year um, I was, I'm happy that I was, I had the opportunity to actually sponsor 11 social equity applicants to participate in that program. Um, that is put out by our MCC. So they have a whole academy that they're launching. So I'm super excited about it. And um, yeah, so when we return, you guys, we're going to learn more about Dr. Um, Ayako. Ayaka, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, please correct me when we come back up, okay? Dr. Ayaka Nurse and um, her journey into the cannabis industry. 
when we return. In the meantime, you guys, if you're watching us on Facebook, now's a great time to hit the share button or better yet, tag some of your friends um, so that they can join as well. You guys can comment and post little things, you know, at the end. We'll be back right after these messages. Uh, it is the budding dispensary of knowledge. We want to be more uh, than just the PubMed of cannabis, the Google Scholar of cannabis. We want to be a continuing education platform that is easily accessible. We see this as being able to leave a legacy for the entire industry and really elevate this plant to where it deserves to be. Chair of the Economic Development, Chair of the Cannabis Subcommittee for the City of Richmond, California. And she's very passionate about researching, developing, and implementing new ideas and policies based on her findings. And she has a diverse background, you guys, in government, in law, and in the media. And she's also the co-founder of Youth Radio. Hi, Dr. Nurse. Welcome to the Cannabis Minority Report Podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Khadija. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So can you tell us, um, Dr. Nurse, a little bit about you and also about your journey into the cannabis industry? Sure. I, I have, a, like you said, I have a background in, in policy, but I started out in media with uh, Youth Radio, and then I worked for a music trade magazine called Gavin. And Throughout my whole career, I've always had an interest in law, and I tried my hand in that and found out I didn't really like it because you have to have a good memory um, to get through your first year. But what everything that I've done has in common is popular culture and how policy shapes that culture. And so I decided to focus on um, policy and public administration. So that's really where my career started and I moved into government. I didn't enter into cannabis until much later after that. And it wasn't even a desire or an interest. Um, I saw that there was a need because of the stringent policies and regulations. And I decided to do my study, conduct my doctoral study on cannabis. And I didn't know the direction that it was going to go in until I actually started researching the history of cannabis, going all the way back to when, you know, before there was a country, it was territories and cannabis is currency. So there was a time where this was flourishing in this country and was a dependable source. But when the United States wanted a superpower. They had to go through cotton production and started to see this correlation between the use of the Black image, the Black plight, historically, all the way to the current legal cannabis industry. And the way that I the, the two industries are formal, which is the stringent regulated um, industry that we have now, and then the informal, which is a flourishing industry that can't seem to, to be controlled. Um, but is it by design or, you know, is it just supposed to be that way? So um, that's where my, my study started to go off in that direction. And I started to see a pattern in the policies that are promoted as being beneficial to tax. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't equate to any type of growth or, or wealth within this industry, which is, you know, common to other industries as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a pattern of exclusion in the formal um, cannabis industry. Yeah, you are absolutely right, I tell you. And, you know, and when you look at other industries as well, you see that same pattern. And it's like, okay, you know, did they really mean to do this? And if they did really mean to do it, you know, how long has this been done that we didn't really pay attention? And I think the cannabis industry kind of 
brought that to the forefront, if you will. I think there was a huge part of, of the movement, you know? Um, so let me ask you something. So earning a PhD, right? Um, and working in traditional corporate environments, if you will, um, did you have any concerns about entering the industry of cannabis? Oh, of course. And I still have those concerns because um, I still work in a policy, um, a policy related entity that is government. However, this needs to be, and it needs to be said. And I think the public needs to be aware of the buzzwords that are used. So when you hear things like justice, um, restorative justice, as it is, those are all ways to generate buy-in in order to generate money, political dollars, of lobbyists with the end goal of federalization has nothing to do with restorative justice our social justice. And what I'm basing that on is 10 years, the past decade, um, even before recreational use, when you had medicinal use in several states, mm -hmm. the amongst Black cannabis entrepreneurs was probably at about 3%. Fast forward 10 years, it's about at 4%. And even in cities where cannabis is legal, in some form, Blacks are still arrested at four times the rate of any other um, race. For example, in the city of Richmond, we just came out with, I mean, numbers that would just floor you. So Blacks in my city make up 20% of the population, but they account for 6% of this arrest. Wow. And so cannabis, uh, you know, arrests that probable cause, that probable cause will lead to being charged with something else. It becomes a ripple effect. That's why I even include equity programs as those buzzwords to kind of look out for. What's usually the first, those are people who are adversely impacted by the war on drugs and who have a criminal conviction. I mean, some cities are, are very specific about even the beat, um, you know, you were on and so on and so forth. But these programs haven't really increased. And during your introduction, you had mentioned how cannabis industries, that they're not um, able to file for certain relief because of COVID. Not only that, a, a national story just came out this weekend that talked about all of the cannabis businesses that looted, just like they're doing the smash and grabs at the major retail stores, they're doing the same thing at the cannabis dispensaries as well. And if you're an equity applicant and you've taken out all of this, all investment dollars, even if you own 51% of the company, it doesn't mean that you get 51% profit share. Usually it's much so they can't, and so most of these businesses that have been hit in the area won't be able to reopen and there's no safety net for them. Yeah. So going back to the original pattern of racial capitalism, which is racializing a market for profit and then promoting a policy as being beneficial to a marginalized mm -hmm. group but there is no intention to increase profit or wealth. And to, I said, how far does this go back? Well, the wealth gap hasn't changed for Black people since Reconstruction. That's so true. it hasn't changed. Yeah. It's only gotten worse and it's still getting, you know, because like I said, it, it doesn't only apply to cannabis. So you have racialization of a market, have a commodity, and in my research, several people that I interviewed, they talked about go to the different conventions and they see caricatures of, of Blacks or, or uh, men and women from the Rasta community. And it's a caricature, and I call it 
caricatures because it's usually like urban graffiti. And the, this is used to us, but these products aren't owned fully by us. And so then it's the, the lax attitude and then the certain things that people feel comfortable saying because it is in the environment of cannabis. And, you know, a lot of them feel uncomfortable, like they can't correct, you know, whoever that, you know, they're interacting with. And it's really no different from working in corporate America and you have natural hair or, you know, things of that nature where people just don't but in cannabis, there's a lack attitude where you can say certain things, you can act certain ways, or you can present certain questions because the other barrier that's not really discussed is perception. And that's the perception of when I walk into a room as a Black, what, are, what is the first thing that comes to your mind, especially when I'm in cannabis? really impacts whether or not those venture capital dollars because last numbers that I saw blacks only receive about cent. That's it. Yeah. A venture capital because we can't that stigma and we have a personal stigma, but then there's an outward stigma too that when we go into cannabis, we're drug dealers. And we're bringing all of this baggage along with us. So back to the criteria for equity programs when they have that as tier one. And it's like, that doesn't define us. Yes, if you grew up in an urban area, you were, you were adversely impacted by the failed drugs. Yeah. And what I argue or what I present in my study is that although seeing that there's a, a movement towards federal legalization that whether or not that's going to happen is a whole conversation but the main thing is that blacks well in the cannabis industry that pattern of racialization commodification and then predatory inclusion those are the three things so the predatory comes in when it's like, oh, okay, I need to go and get that equity applicant and uh, get that license, give them $350,000, business fails, but I get to walk away with the license and, you know, less taxes in the city. Mm -hmm. So we've seen this happen <clears throat> in Oakland. Um, San Francisco even has it where you can only have, get a now if you have an equity applicant. Yeah. Still, and in my city of Richmond, we're moving towards doing the same type of equity ordinance with the same verbiage and arguing this is going to have the same result. Mm -hmm. So that is, that's essentially what my study, it really didn't uncover anything that most people in the industry know it, it, it Right. But what it showed was, okay, this is a pattern in policies. We can go and we can look at financial institutions. They do the same thing. Yeah. Can look at the housing industry with red line. They do the same thing. Yeah. And these programs were started after the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there was an effort and again, it is by design, yeah. there was an effort to um, streamline, or I shouldn't say streamline, it was to devalue certain communities. Oh, yeah. And the way, yeah, way you devalue the communities, you, it, it's, it's a process that you go through. But if anybody has ever gone through the first time buyers program, um, or if you ever went to Wells Fargo to apply for a home loan, mm -hmm. and you were denied, but you look over and you're wondering, why is this couple over here <laughs> getting approved? Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and I'll tell you why it's done that way. The reason why, so it has nothing to do, although it's called racial capitalism, it's not a promotion for socialism because to me, um, and I talk about that in my study, that mm -hmm. is also a racist movement as well. Marx was a racist and he did not hide it. Um, but 
the idea behind racial capitalism is to acknowledge the uh, contributions that Black Americans have made to this great economy. That's right. Capitalism That's right. by itself, you know, a fair market, yeah. capitalism on its own is great. Mm-hmm. But when you apply the tenets of white supremacy to it, that's when it becomes an issue. And we see the same thing in the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's done is to keep the wealth for a few. Just for a few. If, it, if the goal was social justice, restorative justice, and equity, we wouldn't have such a stringent um, regulatory or regulated system. You know what? Let me let me stop you there because you were absolutely right. And and here's what I'll say, especially in Canada. Here's what I hear a lot um, because I work in, and speak with a lot of investors as an investor in the industry, right? And I ask them, you know, um, what about investing in social? Oh no, I don't want to invest in social equity applicants. They still have a lot to learn. They don't know much about the industry on the legal side. And it's because that is the way that social equity applicants are being put, are being advertised or put out there by all these different quote unquote organizations who are there to help social equity applicants. Well, we need to educate them on this. How do you know they aren't educated on it already? Like I'm working with, with social equity applicants in New Jersey. One's working on a freaking PhD. Okay, the other one is working on his bachelor's, they're partners. And, and so they put us out there as though we're uneducated, right? And that we don't know business and it's crazy. And then some of the laws for social equity, right? For the different states who have implemented, which are few and far between, they have these guidelines. Like if you live 400% below the poverty level, then you qualify as a social equity advocacy. What about the people who grew up victims of the war on drugs and so what if they're earning six or seven figures they're still they should still qualify as social equity applicants and they don't and it's frustrating it's like you're you're saying we're going to go to um you know people who are 400 below the poverty line and yeah these are the people that need to be that that were most affected and need to be um educated about what's going on Granted, we all need to be educated about what's going on, but that should not be just the requirement or one of the requirements because there are a lot of us African-Americans and and also brown people who are highly educated, well-educated, who understand business, know business, but yet and still you have all these companies out there that claim, and maybe they do help social equity applicants, and yet... They're putting us out there and branding us as being uneducated or unqualified or we don't know. How do you know that we don't know, right? You are 100% correct. I can tell you for a fact, I have said in on me, I touched on that a little bit about perception. I have set in on meetings without people knowing my background, just making assumptions. And I like to be quiet sometimes and just let them talk. They say the same things. Well, How are you going to teach them basic skills? That's one. And then what about theft? I was like, are you serious? And so we all, like, we steal. Like, oh, (laughs) I hear it all the time. But here's the thing about, because I, policy analyst, one of the things that we do, we look for patterns. You know, it really is a science. There's a formula to a lot of these things. That's why I'm just really intrigued about everything cannabis, but you have to look at the group of consulting firms that the the local municipalities and then even the states that they hire to write these equity ordinances. Usually, uh, you know how they always say follow the money? Oh, yeah. So usually you have to go and you have to look at what is their intent? Not not the you know the municipality or the people who voted for the ordinance, but the consulting firm. Mm-hmm. Usually, they are writing an ordinance to create a pathway for larger corporations to come in and 
push out all of these smaller dispensaries and um, manufacturing companies, cultivate all of that stuff. They know that programs don't work. They know that they're not going to work. That's right. And it, the more that we sound that alarm and not get comfortable with hearing these buzzwords, these feel good words, the intention of these consulting firms are to support larger corporations. Mm -hmm. We are starting to see the cannabis industry, this peace, loving, freedom, restorative justice, you know, industry turn into a real industry for profit. And that's what we have to recognize. This is an industry that's right. for profit. Mm -hmm. And if they want to be able to keep that profit as small as they can. So just like you see in media mm -hmm. that is now on, what is it? Four, three or four different corporations own and control all of the media. You see the same cannabis. And what's really unfortunate is that if we look at cannabis on a global level, the same thing is happening in black countries that's happening here. They have a similar background with, you know, um, locking up people for using cannabis for religious and ceremonial purposes, all of that stuff. And now that they- But you do know that that stems from the United States. Like this okay. didn't happen until the war on drugs, sorry, right? It, it didn't happen. Like a part of a lot of their agreements and, you know, with, with other countries were, was that they actually- um, agreed to and incorporated this law that cannabis was um, illegal, et cetera, et cetera. And before in all of these countries, it has always been legal. Yeah, because it grows everything. If you're in a tropical country, it's going to grow. But I call it the new colonialization because the same ordinance that you see here, you might go over and go in Barbuda are Barbados and see the same and they are leaving out locals they're leaving out the Rasta community they're leaving out the farmers um even in South Africa you know the Black Farmers Association these issues that we have here in America they're seeing the same thing outside of here as well mm -hmm. and between America and Canada going over into these other countries. I mean, it's becoming a, a global issue. And if we don't get it together here, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know, other than making people aware of what's going on and <clears throat> of who you have right these certain, or because there's a way to do a regulated industry right. that's equitable. There's a way to do it. Oh, yeah. But it's not being done. No. And it's not being done because it's going to create too many owners. And if you have too many owners, you have to share too much of a profit. And they're not looking at what's going on in the informal market. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I wanted to say about the crime and the looting that's been going on in, in the Bay Area with uh, in terms of cannabis, um, they, I'm sorry, I lost my because oh, I'm, I'm rambling on too much. But um, one of the things that one of the gentlemen said is that it was safer to sell in informal market than the formal. He said, he said it was actually safer to sell on the street than it is legally. And that's the problem. That is the problem. That's a, that, that's a serious issue. And so I, I don't know um, what direction cannabis is going in terms of the legal issue, but in terms of the policy issue, it's not going to lead to um, economic growth or wealth amongst Blacks. Well, I tell you, you know, there's so many of us that's working towards generational wealth and creating generational wealth for our families and establishing these companies, right? Because um, the industry was built on the backs of Black and Brown people. So let's just be clear. And at the end of the day, you know, um, the way that the war on drugs was designed, you know, many people say the drugs, the war on drugs failed. Well, 
they put it, it didn't fail the way that they, it succeeded based on what they wanted, but it was failed as it relates to the black and brown communities because it failed us, right? It failed to protect us. It failed to put us, you know, uh, first, if you will, as it relates to um, what's fair and what's not fair, right? right? Even to this day, here we are in December of 2021 and black and brown people are still being arrested at high rates and high levels. You know, you don't go in the suburbs and see a police officer on the corner, uh, uh, on every corner of the suburbs, but you'll go into the hood and you'll see police officers on every single street. And here's what's interesting. They say it's because it's high crime there. Really? Honestly? I mean, and it's frustrating. It's so frustrating. So let me ask you a couple more questions. Um, so, you know, do you offer services to other companies? And if you do, um, what, what kind of companies can benefit from the services that you offer? I do offer other, both in cannabis and outside of cannabis, because I do um, policy. And what I would like to do more of because I do a lot of consulting, um, working with uh, on applications and putting it together, business strategies, things of that nature. And then also working with local municipalities. And then I've worked with Antigua and Barbuda to clear up some of the things on their um, ordinance. They were about to have um, unlimited acreage. Mm. Like, do you know how much grows? So I really love doing that type of stuff. And so business strategies, um, policy formation, policy implementation, those are the services that I provide um, within cannabis. Um, one of the things that I learned from this study um, is that if we pulled our resources together, we wouldn't have to depend on um, you know any what? Type of program. Oh my God, I'm so glad you said that because I keep saying the same thing over and over again. It's like, we just pulled all of our resources together because, I mean, wouldn't you agree that it's this organization run by this minority organization or this organization run by this minority organization, all these different organizations out there, nonprofit organizations out there with the same mission, the same goals are not collaborating and we need to collaborate and we need to put our monies and our re uh, resources together because now we wouldn't depend on that because you know the, the black community right now um as of and mind you there's hasn't been any recent studies unless you know you, you may be able to correct me since that's your field but according to the united states since 2016 uh african americans contribute 1.38 trillion dollars into the marketplace and i was just 2016, they haven't even done another study to my recollection, and this is 2021, so they're about five years behind, unless you can correct me on that. Well, I discuss it in my study. You're mm -hmm. about know the figure right off the top of my head, but Blacks are the largest consumers, but we have the lowest representation in terms of ownership. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't always been that um, we weren't always the consumers, but that's a part of the racial capitalism education you you and I are actually walking commodities everything um, in terms of popular culture is bounced off of us and it spreads out to everywhere else and yes it does we have that personal stigma so we have a lot of work that we need to do internally too mm. because it's that personal stigma that one we can dress our way out of racism um two that we cannot work together. We always hear that you don't work with, you know, family, don't. I'm like, well, what about the Chinese restaurant model? It has nothing to do with food. Um, right. And I'm being very respectful of this, this model. I'm, you know, not joking yeah. about or anything. They have an amazing model. When you go into a Chinese restaurant, their menus are vast, <laughs> you know? And it's not just Chinese, hey, you know, the, the Asian culture, um, across the board, but their business model is not having so many choices is working with family. That's right. And it's keeping the it. money together. So we don't want to, we also have to deal with the stigmas and the perceptions that we have for working with each other. And that was the huge yeah. takeaway from the study that I conducted because yeah. the individuals that I interviewed all had 
the same barriers, but they all, you know, represented different um, uh, business backgrounds. Some were business owners, some weren't, some were educated, some high school educated. Um, there were master growers, which they may not have a formal education, so to speak, but their minds are amazing. I mean, these are young guys too, just master growers. Yeah. And if they all pulled those resources together, they wouldn't have to ask for anything. And it also looked very profitable to uh, an investor as well. Yeah, let, let, let me just say this. I, I tell people all the time in our communities that yes, we can work together. We have been brainwashed to believe that we can't work together. You see, we don't have patience when we're dealing with other um, black businesses and business owners, you see, when they mess up, we hold them at a much higher um, 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 accountability than we do our counterparts, you see, because Tom can say, you know, the white Tom or Karen, you know, can say, oh, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake on this, that, and the other, I'll fix it for you. Oh, it's okay. But then we'll say when a black company we're working with, make, oh, I just knew I shouldn't have worked with y'all before, da, 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 da. And we really need to get away from that doggone stereotypical mentality because it is a fact that black folks can work together. It's a fact. It's, you it's, know, it's been going on. centuries. Um, right. It, it, and, and here's a example and, and not to go off on a tangent but I, I just want to share this because this is a, a real story so I'm on my father's side from Centerville Texas which is a small small town and he was always under the impression that after the Civil War that his ancestors were given this land but after I did some research I found out that in 1856, after the Civil War, my grandfather, six times over, Isaac Young, fought in the Civil War and was able to homestead 300 acres based off of the laws that were set by the Freedmen's Bureau. So as soon as he was finished fighting for this country and then to prove he had to prove again that he owned the land in 1903 and was able to get a patent for it. And so for seven generations, they farmed this land. Things didn't start to fall apart until the late 70s. So we can actually trace back to, you know, the prison industrial complex into more specifically what I know a little bit more about our laws and then the policies that guide the laws that were actually designed to siphon wealth from communities that were developed. All throughout this country, even in California, there are towns that were flooded in order to, to take over that land. They were Black-owned towns, flourishing towns, just like the one that I just named Centerville. There, there were more schoolhouses and less students compared to the whites that were, were there in this town. Mm -hmm. So something happened, but all you have to do, again, is follow the history of policies okay. and devaluing communities. Because, you know, the thing about it is, if it wasn't us, it would be another group of people. Oh, yeah, it would be. So mm -hmm. it's not that we're special, so to speak, but we're a group of people that no one listens to. Mm -hmm. um, so we see the same pattern in our foster care system. You have Black children that are removed from the home at 12 times the rate as any other racial or ethnic group of people. How is that possible? And it's for general neglect, which is subjective. We're not talking about physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse, general neglect, which is subjective. That's based off of someone saying, we don't like what we see, so we're gonna take your kids away. Mm -hmm. So how are you able to do that, but you're not able to repeat that amongst other ethnic groups? Yeah. Do that to those who, well, if you complain, oh, you're bringing up the race card. Numbers don't lie. Yeah, now, numbers don't lie. They the don't. Story, <laughs> the story behind the numbers, yeah, you know, yeah. the narrative can 
you know, swayed. But when you start people's faith, like, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. why are all of these children being removed? Or why is it that you're using the Black plight push federal legalization and the and then banking too. Those are the two major things in cannabis, banking and, and federal legalization. But you're not doing anything to grow up ownership or economic wealth within the Black community. That is so true. Let me tell you something. We have to have you back on the show because this is just, <laughs> like you are fired me up. Like I am on fire right now. Seriously, because we're talking about some stuff I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, but we don't have that much time left. So let me just jump right into this. As an African-American woman in the cannabis space in this newly legalized um, industry, what obstacles have you faced and overcome? Um, again, it's a perception. Um, I'm, I'm accustomed to it um, because I, I, I also facilitate classes as well. So I'll walk in and, you know, they don't think I'm there to teach. You know, it's things like that. But those are those are soft things. Those are teachable mm-hmm. moments. And I always use those as teachable moments. Mm-hmm. But what I have faced... You're very is, kind. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know... Sometimes, but there's just, yeah, there's just things that you can't let go. And, and I think the major obstacles that I have gone through have been on the political side. Yeah. And that's been the most disheartening because as a subject matter expert in my field, I'm always questioned. It's, I, I always say I have to wear my resume on my forehead and I shouldn't have to do that. That's right. You know, so I go into political situations and it's so easy to to spearhead like a smear campaign against someone that looks like us and it's very damaging. And I think that has been the greatest obstacle is trying to navigate this whole political realm. You know, I, I have my my undergrad is in um political science. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going into politics. I know how everything works. No, you don't, because people are very, very, very cruel when it comes down to pushing their agenda. And so that's why I try and be very direct when I tell people be careful when someone comes and they're promoting something as being beneficial to you. And it has no real benefit and they can't show you how it's going to benefit. Be very careful of those who come and approach you about, oh, I'll give you money. I'll invest in you if you give me access. So I I get that a lot. Like, you know, I don't ask anyone for that. Don't have anything with me. I'm not going to bring you into it. So we are being used and taken advantage of, but that doesn't happen unless we put ourselves in a position to do it. So those have been the major obstacles. And, and I don't know how to play the political game. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I say that all the time and, and I get in trouble a lot. But I was told by a great mentor that if you're getting in trouble for something that, that you're doing right, well, you, you're doing it the right way. You're doing, you're doing good. doing the right way. Absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, it's not very, it's not a very popular stance. Um, I've been called a lot of things and, and accused of, of doing certain things. I'm like, no, I'm being honest. These equity programs are failing. They're failing and they're failing yeah. for a reason. Yeah. It's designed that way. And if you think cannabis is be this great equalized social justice, it's not, it's for profit. It's for mm-hmm. profit. It's for yeah. money. So Think about opening up a grocery store or or a car wash. You can probably make a lot more money. (laughs) Here's what I say. Look, I think now is the time for black and brown people. Actually, since since recreation, even before recreation, you know, because my research stems all the way back in biblical times, Genesis 1, 12, Genesis 1, 29 and 30, Exodus 30, 22. So it stems back to back, way back then. And so, you know, I just really believe that, you know, we really have to take advantage of 
um, the participation of this industry. Um, it is, we didn't get a chance to invest in the oil industry. We didn't get a chance to invest in all of these big industries. Some people call the dot-com industry. And it, it wasn't an industry. It was a, that was a fad, right? It, 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 it was a bubble that burst at the end of the day. Okay. And so, you know, but we didn't have an opportunity, nor were we told about a lot of these industries. And so now I believe being at the beginning of this industry is a time for us to you know, get involved, whether as business owners, entrepreneurs, investors, or what have you, or even employees, <clears throat> but really getting our foot in. So what advice would you give to other women seeking to enter the industry? And what are your current needs as a company? Um, well, the advice that I would give is, is don't compromise. If entering into the cannabis industry and encourage professional women who have an interest in don't be afraid a job is a job is a job having your own is something totally different that's right and sometimes you have to step out on faith that's only if you you're that passionate about it because it's, it's not easy because that's that's another place where you see racial disparities in ownership i've actually heard and i've seen and i've witnessed black people don't touch the money <laughs> you know, so, you know, that and people feel comfortable saying that, but mm -hmm. um, I would say don't compromise, um, learn as much as you can about not just cannabis, but business as well, um, and then venture to the history of cannabis. You went all the way back to the biblical times, yeah. but we have to get rid of that stigma that we have as well and judgment mm -hmm. that we have um and, you know not just towards cannabis it's just you know towards uh drug use drug use or whatever um yeah and how we perceive people um mm -hmm. and then not equating cannabis as being a drug um yeah i mean that is the biggest challenge right now for so many uh, people um, outside of the cannabis industry, so many religious leaders and all of this, they can't get past the fact that cannabis is a plant and not a drug. And anyways, that's a whole other conference. We're, we're, we're coming exactly. up on time right now. How do people contact you via website, social media, their phone number or? Yes. My, the name of my company is Global Reach Strategies. And I can be reached at Global reachstrat at gmail.com. So it's just global reach strat, S-T-R-A-T at gmail.com. Uh, if you would like to read a, my full study, it's kind of long, but- um, I know it's 181 pages, 197 odd pages. I'm on, I'm, I'm on number 78. I'm still reading. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. And I, I was very fascinated and it just increased my, my, my love for, for the plant and our resilience through everything. And that's one thing, one other thing when, when you asked me what I wanted the, it's, it's not to discourage anyone saying, okay, the rate, the wealth gap hasn't grown are that we don't represent more than 10% of the industry. I think it's like at 4%. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that there's something inherently wrong or that, oh, woe is me. It's our resilience. That's right. We can do it. It's been done before. It's already in us, to, but the mistake we have made is to be appeased. You are absolutely right. That is the mistake. That's the mistake. Don't be comfortable. Don't, you know, and I can go off on a tangent, then I don't want to do that because I might say something that would offend the audience, but don't become comfortable with crumbs. That's right. Don't allow investors come in and separate you from your group. They do that. Absolutely. They, they cherry pick and That's they study right. and they do not let them do that. Work, trust each other, hone your skills, bring in as many resources as you can 
And, and that's what you do. And, and those are strategies that um, I discuss with different companies at, at, at different levels. So whether or not you're just starting out your, your application phase or you're already in the staff um, business, I, I'm working with someone now who has cultivation sites in several different, different but they needed a more cohesive structure um, yeah. in order to operate. So I work with them as well. Um, but those are those are things that I would encourage people um, to do and and just be very leery of those patterns, racialization, commodification, and predatory inclusion. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. We really appreciate you. We have to have you back on the show. I'd love to be back. I enjoyed this so much. Yes, I have too. So we wish you so much success in your company and um, look forward to having you on as a guest again. So thanks again. Stick around though. Um, We'll be back in just a little bit. Hey y'all, if you are to subscribe to our um, podcast, you can actually go to Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and any of your favorite platforms. If you like um, your products highlighted on the Cannabis Minority Report while we are broadcasting, um, you know, if you have a 30 second video um, or a one minute video, then make sure you get at me, inbox me at info at KhadijaAdams.com, info at KhadijaAdams.com. Hey, we'll be back right after these messages. Very proud to be NCAA members. Uh, we've been members for the last three years, and I gotta say, every event, every conference, every uh, you know get together that's sponsored by NCAA is a good opportunity not just to meet uh, you know others in the industry, obviously, uh, but really to talk about the industry as a whole, where it's going, where it's been, our challenges to date. We feel really grateful to NCAA for including us in the educational tracks the last three years. We've been at every seed to sale and most of the shows in, on the West Coast. Every time we're here, I always have a sense that it's not just another one of these industry conferences, that it's actually, um, that it is the industry's lobbying arm and that it's an organization that is protecting all of us and fighting for the legal future that we all need. At the end of the day, the most important and impactful thing for us is the community. It's really about the people, the people that NCIA brings together and, and the events like this one that NCIA organizes for, for us to gather. If you're in this industry, NCIA is trying to influence it positively for you. If you're not speaking up, if you're not participating in committees, you're missing out on a huge window. You know, everyone wants change. Well, this is one of the ways you, you do it. You don't have to be a member of the NCIA. You could just do nothing and let them do everything for you and fix all the problems that need to be fixed for the industry to work properly. And you could just sit on the sidelines. That would be fine, but it'd be better if you were a member. Dr. Nurse, I am just so excited and um, just happy that we had her on. Want you guys to check out the NCIA's um, members news blog and the industry insights that includes, um, you know, our NCIA member spotlight series, and that's where we highlight some of the new um, members who have joined us through our social equity scholarship program. Don't forget to download the NCIA's mobile app as well. And then join the NCIA at the Cannabis Business Summit taking place December 15th through the 17th in San Francisco. Um, you can actually purchase tickets at CannabisBusinessSummit.com, CannabisBusinessSummit.com. And then a special shout out to our DEI program sponsors, Tahoe Wellness, Um, Center, and also the law offices of Omar Figueroa and Copper State Farms. The mission of the DEIC committee is to educate, to advocate, to engage and empower the community of cannabis and its members by cultivating partnerships with other nonprofit organizations with similar goals, providing resources that create and sustain an environment that is inclusive, equitable, and diverse. We are committed to building a culture that respects our members and also celebrates their contribution as we all work together to strengthen all communities in the cannabis space. Until next Monday, you guys.
Peace, love, and hippie stuff. NCIA's Cannabis Minority Report is a product of the National Cannabis Industry Association and NCIA's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. We are hosted every week by Khadijah Adams. Our executive producers are Aaron Smith and Vince Chandler. We are directed by Vince Chandler and produced by Bethany Moore. Please, please, please find out everything you can about the growing and equitable cannabis industry at thecannabisindustry.org.